Well, good evening to everyone. I know this setup looks a little different, uh, but we're excited to bring ministers of the roundtable to our in-person assembly, uh, as well as to our live streaming. We're grateful that you've chosen to come out tonight. We're excited that we will now be offering an in-person assembly on Sunday nights, and, and hopefully every week more and more will, will join us. Uh, but we're grateful that you're here, whether you're in person or online. And this is a different format than we're used to on Sunday nights as far as being in person. We're going to, for a few weeks at least, continue our Ministers of the Roundtable Bible study uh, and, and do it in this manner. And we, we pray that it will continue to be a blessing to you as, as you follow along with, with our study. One thing I want to mention up front is that uh, while we are in person, we're, we're not here to field questions or comments from the audience. We're here to engage in a study that you will participate along with. And hopefully it'll be a blessing to everyone involved. Uh, but thank you for being here. And before we uh, dive into our study tonight, we're going to be led in a word of prayer. And uh, Jay Hall is going to lead us in that prayer. So I'm going to direct it over to him to uh, get us started with a word of prayer. Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for giving us this evening, this afternoon in which we can come back together and be together, Lord. Uh, tonight, as we study your word, we hope that you will bless this study. We hope that by the end of this study, we will have come closer to you. Lord, as we study the wisdom that you have given to us in this word, in this bound form. Lord, I ask you to be with us as we stand, sit up here, Lord, as we discuss this um, topic of the reliability of your word. We know it's perfect, Lord, because it's from you. And so I ask you just to guide us. Let us be humble as we, as we talk about it and guide, us our, guide our discussion. Let it be beneficial to all those, including us. We thank you for being our God. We, we, we truly live in a blessed generation that we can come here tonight amidst this uh, pandemic that we're still living in, that we can still be together in this way, and that we can have your word in a bound form in front of us, whether it be in, in page or whether it be on an app or wherever it may be, that we have, we have your word together with us tonight. And we ask you to help this study draw us closer to you. For all your son's name, amen. 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 Now, last week, if you were joining us online with the Ministers of the Roundtable, we introduced a new study. It was a study that we're calling Got Questions. And the whole idea of it is we're wanting to investigate and, and discuss uh, some of the most common questions that we've received as ministers that relate to Scripture and theology and, and such. And so we started last week uh, by, by... I've already forgotten what last week was. <laughs> doubting. Questions. Doubting, uh, doubting, that's what it was. We, we talked last week about, is it okay to ask God questions? This week, we want to shift gears, and our focus is going to be on where do we get the answers. Our, our, our objective this week is to talk about this one question. Is the Bible reliable? Is the source of our answers something we can trust? And so our focus tonight is, is going to be on the reliability of Scripture. I want to begin with this one question, though. This question that we're going to talk about first is, what does inspiration mean? If you will, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's look at verse 16 and 17 in particular. It's a passage I'm certain you're familiar with or you've at least heard quoted on, on numerous occasions. But let's look at this text for just a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. There Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Now, the, you don't, the English Standard Version, which I just read from, does not use the word inspiration. It uses the phrase breathed out by God. The Greek term that's being translated there literally means 
God breathed. In some translations, we'll just use that hyphenated term. But it's referring to the fact that, that it is inspired by God, it is directed by God, and, and so on. And when Paul wrote this in particular here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he's specifically thinking about what we call the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. So I want you to also notice something that Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. If you'll go there with me very quickly, 2 Peter chapter 3. And it's verse 15 and 16. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Peter says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our... I'm telling you, the microphones hate me. <laughs> All right, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. What I think is important to note here is that Peter is writing about Paul's writings, and he makes a comparison between them and the Scriptures. And so even in the context of the New Testament, we have a reference to New Testament writings as if they are on par with the other Scriptures, the Scriptures that we refer to as the Old Testament. The whole point that I'm trying to make here is between 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 2 Peter chapter 3, we have reference made to the Old Testament and the New Testament, equating them to something that came from God, to inspiration, something that's inspired, I should say. So the question we're going to spend a little bit of time on is what does inspiration mean? What does it mean for these texts to be God-breathed? And, and one thing we need to understand is that means it's directed by God. But the question we're really kind of focused on is, does that mean that God dictated every word that appears in Scripture? Or, or is there more to it than that? Now, there, there are obviously some sections of Scripture where God is dictating. He speaks to a prophet, and the prophet uh, uh, restates or, or records, records is the word I wanted. The prophet records the words of the Lord. You'll see that multiple times throughout the Old Testament. Or, or you'll see Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, give reference to what the Lord has said. But then Paul will also say, but this is from me. This is what the Lord said, this is from me. It doesn't mean that Paul's not inspired when he writes what he's about to say. It just means that Paul might be speaking uh, more from his own personality and experience, and, and he's, but he's still being guided by the Holy Spirit. See, what we have in Scripture is God leading the compilation of His Word through these various agents. We'll talk more about the, the uniqueness of the text in just a moment of, of Scripture and, and the numerous agents that are involved, the numerous amount of time that's involved. But what we have in the text of Scripture is we have something that is led by God, utilizing people. People's personalities, people's vocabulary, people's experiences. John's going to be an individual who, when he writes, he loves to talk about love. Paul's going to be an individual who has a unique vocabulary that, that connects all of his letters together, and you can see him using similar language repeatedly. 
And God is the one who is guiding all of these different individuals to record this information collectively. With that, I'm going to take a break and let these other guys chime in on what it means, what inspiration means. You know, Kyle, I think, uh, Kevin, turn it down. That's uh, too loud there. Uh, <clears throat> I think when it, the, the reason this is such a uh, well-known question that, you know, this whole series is questions that we receive constantly uh, is because we want to know more about how we got the Bible. We want to know, can we trust the Bible? Is the Bible reliable? The question for tonight is, and that's why we get this question. And one of the most in, in, interesting discussions you can have on the Bible is this idea of inspiration. What does that mean? What does God breathe mean? Does that mean that these writers' bodies were taken over and, and God was just moving their hand for them as they wrote? Uh, you know, some would have you believe that. Some would teach that. And that idea is called mechanical dictation. Uh, these writers just became robots as God moved their hand. And some would believe that. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of verses that talk about this, about what the Holy Spirit was going to do and how it was going to work within the writers. Uh, in fact, you can look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. 2 Peter 1 and verse 20, it says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so this, in, in connection with 2 Timothy 3, gives us an idea of how these men wrote the Word. And you can also look at uh, verses like Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. This is when Jesus is sending out the twelve. In Matthew 10, 19 and 20, He tells them, don't worry about what you're going to say. Well, what does that mean? In Matthew 10, He's saying, when you are pulled in front of the Sanhedrin, when you are pulled in front of these leaders of, and, and rulers, don't worry about what you're going to say because that will be given to you by the Holy Spirit. Well, does that mean that they were taken over, that their bodies were taken over, that they had no free will in their decision-making or no personality like you're talking about? You know, we also look at Exodus chapter 4. What did Moses, one of his five or five million complaints or uh, excuses he gave God before he decided to lead the Exodus? In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 12, he's complaining about how he's not a good speaker. And what does God say? He said, I will be with your mouth. What does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean Moses was just taken over by God and God was uh, just using his mouth? Or was Moses have a little bit of free will and personality? I think the answer can, we can find in John chapter 16. In John chapter 16, Jesus is explaining about how this comforter, this helper, is going to come called the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16 and verse 13, he says, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So I think the idea is, did the writers have all the free, uh, what's the free, when you want to write what you want to write? Free will? Uh, did they have all the creative uh, license, that's the one I was looking No, they didn't have all the creative license in the world they wanted. But they also weren't taken over by God. To, that God wasn't moving their hand. God was leading them into all truth. Verse 13 of John chapter 16. The Holy Spirit led them into this truth. And as we know, the Word of God gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
John, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures give my inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, all these things, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped. This leading us into all truth. So no, their bodies weren't taken over from them, and no, they didn't have all the creative license in the world. But it was the Holy Spirit who spoke through all of these men, all the way from Moses, all the way to John at the end, and led them into this all truth for which we read the Bible today. Um, I would like to add uh, some um, about uh, inspiration. Inspiration is not a thing that we can understand fully because it is from God. I mean, let me give you just one example. You know, uh, probably the most uh, sophisticated and complicated thing that we have in the Bible is the Ark of Covenant. You know, uh, the Moses people had to make the Ark of Covenant uh, according to the guide, guidance of, of God. And it was shown to Moses probably in a moment. And if you see uh, the book of Hebrews chapter, chapter 8 verse 5, uh, it says that, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So it was shown to Moses in a moment probably, but Moses could exactly interpret it into the human language that Moses' people could make you know, exactly how God wanted, uh, wanted them to make. So inspiration is like that. And we have the words, how they made it. And it is so exact. And so that's what inspiration does. And it, is, it cannot be fully understood in human minds, but uh, it is like it is. Kind of going on the same train of thought there, a very similar example I thought about, and we were talking about this at our fall retreat this weekend, is when David is char charging his son Solomon to build the temple. I think about First Chronicles chapter 28, in verse, um, verse 19, as he's telling Solomon, this is how you're going to know how to build it. This is how you're going to know what, it, what the structure is supposed to look like, how you're going to go about doing it. Verse 19 of 1 Chronicles 28 says, All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. What they were building, God's word isn't the only inspired thing that we have from God. We have God's breath being told to man to build the Ark of the Covenant. We have God's inspiration to how to build the first temple here. And so what both of these things are doing here is to bring honor to God. And maybe more than both of those put together, we have God's word that brings honor to him. And God has a hand in that. And just as he's revealed to Moses and just as he revealed to David of how he wanted this structure to be built... That's how he is dictating to these men, this is how I want this to look, this is how I want it to be built. Behold kind of the pattern here that he kind of gives them. With that, I mean, you know, we were talking beforehand about all of the evidence that we have of inspiration. Uh, no book can claim the things that the Bible claims. Uh, no book explains scientific facts like the Bible explains. It doesn't go into things thousands of years before they were ever discovered or figured out like the Bible does. So do you want to talk a little bit about that as we look at inspiration itself? Yeah, there's a handful of these just scattered throughout the Bible. Wisdom from God that man did not discover until, you know, centuries later. They just did not come in contact, didn't think about this. 
One, one that I think strikes me more than anything else is the, the laws of cleanliness. Cleanliness? Cleanliness, cleanliness, cleanliness yeah. yeah. I'm going on about five hours of sleep right now. The laws of being clean in Leviticus, right? Leviticus chapter 11 through 18. God is laying out this theory that there are certain things that you don't touch. There are certain things that you remove from the camp because if you touch that, if you're around that, you'll become sick. What God is expressing to them is, a, is germ theory. This thing that has died, this thing that is no longer healthy for us, we don't need to be around it anymore. Don't touch that. Don't be around that person. Man doesn't kind of solidify that thought until the late 18th century, late 19th century, excuse me. So thousands of years later, man is finally figuring out what God has already told man back in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 11. And so we have, God, we have evidence just scattered throughout the Bible. I think of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, when it calls that he who sits above the circle mm -hmm. of the world. And we still got people debating whether that's a flat, if that's a statement of truth or not. But there's evidence from Genesis all the way down to Revelation of God's wisdom on display and the scientific reliability of God's word too. We have his, in, in, we have his inspiration on every page, but we also have his wisdom just laid out in front of us well before man knew what he was talking about. Yeah, and the other thing that's very interesting about Scripture is you've got over um, 30 different authors in the Old Testament, uh, at least eight different authors in the New Testament, and, and all of these texts span somewhere between 13 and 1,500 years, and yet there is consistency throughout it. Despite the length of time it's taken to, it took to write all of these different books, and the number of people involved in their authorship, you have unity. And that unity can only be accomplished if there's inspiration behind it. And so when you, when you look at the, the overall uh, unity of Scripture and the, and the fact that if you truly study it, it does not contradict itself. If you look at that level of unity, you can't help but see God's inspiration just as you can't help but see it in the, the, uh, some of the scientific accuracy that preceded what man knew. And so when we look at Scripture, we're, we're seeing a text that has all of the fingerprints of God's involvement if we look close enough. And, and, and one thing we can uh, be sure about inspiration is what uh, Jesus did and what happened to Jesus. And all things were prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus did and uh, what Jesus happened. So that was the inspiration from God. I mean, that was the evidence of the inspiration from God. So we spend some time here talking about what inspiration means, but I think it's time we transition and, and consider how did we get these books together? How did the Bible, how was it constructed? How, do we, how did we get to the point that we had these, these 39 books of the Old Testament, these 27 of the New? How did this come into existence? Ben, why don't you get us started? Yeah, you know, you, when you look at the Bible, again, one of the interesting conversations you have to have is the transmission of the text. How was, how was the text of God, how was this God-breathed, inspired word transmitted to man? And we got to look at that, and we see that God, deci God decided to use these three languages that we find in the Scriptures, and there's a big reason why he did that. You look at the Old Testament Hebrew and the Aramaic in some spots in the Old Testament, and then the New Testament Greek. We know that these are dead languages. What's the importance of choosing a dead language? 
Well, it's obvious that in our culture today that words change meaning, do they not? In our culture today, uh, this word 30 years ago meant that, and now it means something totally different. And we all know the examples, and we could list some. But there's no need, because we all understand what we're talking about. There are words that change in a, in a language that is current. But with a dead language, guess what can't change? The meaning of the word. So when you look at the scriptures, and when you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, you can't just come along thousands of years later and say, no, I didn't mean that, it means this, because that's what that word means now. No, we know what it meant then, and that's what it means now, because God decided to choose those languages. That's something we don't really think about much. But when you take classes at Freed and at other Christian colleges, uh, you, you, you learn these things about how God chose these languages. And then secondly, we've got to look at when it comes to the transmission of the text and how we got the Bible that we have today. We've got to look at the canonicity. Well, there's a big one, a big word, canonicity, right? What is the canon of Scripture? And we've got to look at what the word canon means. When you have the canon, this is talking about the list. A canon is a list of books that are deemed inspired and God-breathed like we just talked about. What does the word canon mean? Well, it comes from a Greek word meaning read or measuring stick. So when you look at the canon of God's word, you're talking about these books that measure up to a certain standard. Now, what is that standard? When you look at canonicity, uh, I was taught there are six different stages of canonicity that every single biblical book had to go through in order to be deemed inspired. And these six are as follows, if you'll stick with me. Number one is antiquity. Is this book in the right time frame? Is this book old enough? When you dig up this uh, scroll, does it come from the right time period or not? Well, if it doesn't, then it's obviously not inspired. Number two is, is this book or is this certain text quoted in non-biblical works or biblical works? For instance, does Jesus quote from it later on in the New Testament, from the Old Testament? Or, by, you know, does, is this quoted by another biblical author? you got certain books that are in the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha that are not quoted by Jesus or any of the apostles. So there's obviously a red flag there. Why is this book not being used or utilized by anyone else? Well, there might be a reason for that. It's not inspired. Number three, how did the original readers receive it? Did they see this as an inspired, God-breathed book or not? Or did they see it as a very entertaining book? You read First and Second Enoch in the Pseudepigrapha. Man, that's some very entertaining things. But you look at how the original audience of First and Second Enoch, and they didn't see it as inspired. They knew it was not. So why should we? Number four is language use. In this certain time frame, what languages do we find the, the state in? We've already talked about language a little bit. Number five, was this book translated into uh, another language? For instance, you realize how expensive it was to translate from the Old Testament Hebrew to the Greek. You look at the Septuagint and the other translations of the Old Testament that they had in the biblical times, 
if they spent the time to translate that book into that different language, that automatically gives that book a lot more credibility. Why? Because they deemed it necessary to translate into that current language. And number six, this is called cessation of prophecy. Well, was this book written during times that God was talking to people or not? You look at the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. What was that called? A time of silence from God. Well, there's all these books, First and Second Maccabees and all these other books. That's automatically a red flag because that was written during a time where God was silent. So why should we trust this book or this writer that wrote in a time of silence from God? So those are these six steps of canonicity that you've got to look at for each and every single biblical book. And I say all that to say this, number one, to where we can understand and have faith and trust in the canon that we have. But number two, to where we can understand that the word that we have today and tonight, every single one of these books had to go through these tests of canonicity, these steps of canonicity. And so, is the Bible reliable? Yes, because every single one of these books went through every single one of these steps. And they were contended for and debated about and so we should have that faith because every single one of them measures up the word canon. You know, that, thank you for sharing all of those uh, measuring points for the canon. The Old Testament canon itself, the collection of the, the books that we know to be the Old Testament, was probably finalized a few hundred years before Jesus lived, probably in the uh, 400 B.C. time frame. And, and what's very interesting is that the Hebrew Bible, as it's called, uh, looks very different than ours. In fact, if you were to um, have a, a Jewish po person show you their, their text of the Old Testament, it only has 24 books. Uh, it has three sections to it. One is called the Torah. That's the one we're probably the most familiar with. That's the first five books of the Bible. And Torah means teaching or instruction. And so the books of Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy make up that. But then they have a section called the Nevi'im, which means prophets. And this was a section that would look different to us. It would include Joshua and Judges, Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel is one book, Kings, 1st and 2nd Kings is one book. Then they would also include Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the minor prophets, all 12 minor prophets would make up one book. Then they have a third section called the Ketavim, which means the writings. This is the, the text that don't fit under Torah and under prophets. They have Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah as one book, and Chronicles, first and second combined in one book. I, I share that with you because those 24 books would have constituted their, um, their Bible, if you will, uh, at the time of Jesus. And when you look at the life of Jesus, he'll make reference to these three sections on numerous occasions. For instance, if you were to open up your Bibles and, and go to Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, Jesus speaks in Luke 24, verse 44, he speaks of the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Now, he uses the word Psalms to uh, categorically refer to that whole section known as the writings because the Psalms would be the biggest book of that section. And so in Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus uses language that makes reference to the three big sections of the Hebrew Bible. He also alluded at one time in Luke chapter 11 and verse 51, he alluded to the collection of books that, that we know of as the Old Testament, 
by referring to a text from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Now that doesn't make much sense to us, but by referring to the blood of Abel and the blood of Zechariah, he's referring to the first and last martyr mentioned in the Old Testament. Abel, of course, we're familiar with. He uh, was uh, uh, killed by... Um, Cain. Cain, uh, but yeah. There you go. Cain, and, and, well, thank you. I was thinking, I was trying to go to the chapter, Genesis chapter 4. I was kept saying 3 in my head, and uh, uh, that wasn't making sense. Uh, but he was killed in Genesis chapter 3, I mean 4. See, I already messed up. And then there's Zechariah. He's the last martyr mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. His, his, his death is actually recorded in the book of Chronicles. But you have to remember that the prophets, we place them all at the end of our order of the Old Testament when really they fit more in the context of what happens between First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, even to Ezra and Nehemiah. So you, Jesus makes reference in general in some ways to all of the Old Testament. So by the time of Jesus, the whole Old Testament has been canonized, has come to be a specific collection of books. The New Testament canon really gets uh, finalized in the second century. Uh, you have to remember the book of Revelation was lit, written towards the end of the first century, possibly as late as 90 AD or so, somewhere in there. So the New Testament canon really takes its final shapes in the second century, and there's reason for it. There's a couple of big movements that happen in the second century in, in uh, Christendom, for lack of a better word, that make it apparent that there needs to be a specified collection based on the parameters that, that Ben just mentioned. There was a heretical movement led by a guy named Marcion in, uh, um, in, in which he rejected the whole Old Testament. He rejected um, uh, any text that made reference really to Judaism. He didn't like Matthew because Matthew's gospel was geared towards the Jewish people. He, he wouldn't like the book of Hebrews for very apparent reasons. And so he proposed one of the first New Testament canons, and it consisted of a mutilated version of Luke. In other words, he chopped it up and ten Pauline letters, and that was it. And suddenly Christians realized, wait, there are other texts that should be included. So they, they realized, okay, we need to open the canon up more because Marcion's trying to close it too much. A little bit later in the second century, a guy named Montanus comes along, and Montanus starts trying to add books, add books that don't belong. He, he actually began prophesying him of his own accord about 156 A.D., and he, uh, he believed and claimed that the Holy Spirit promised in John chapter 14 through 16, excuse me, was continuing to operate and was continuing to communicate. And suddenly Christians realize, wait a minute, we've got a guy who's trying to add more texts to the canon. So now we need to close the canon a little bit. So throughout the second century, you have two big heretical movements come along, one that tries to restrict the canon too much and one that tries to expand it too much. And for that reason, they start this process of, of, close, of defining the canon, I should say, based on the parameters that Ben mentioned. And let me say this. I'm a believer that if we're going to subscribe to the inspiration of Scripture, that's not just to its writing, but to its collecting. That if God's going to oversee that the text of Scripture in, in, encapsulates everything about His will, He's also going to oversee that everything we need to be bound up in Scripture is going to be included. Uh, when we were meeting to discuss tonight's study uh, last week, Ben made a comment about how 1 Corinthians is not 1 Corinthians. 
In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul makes mention of a letter he wrote to that congregation before 1 Corinthians. So technically speaking, 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is really 3 Corinthians, and possibly 4 Corinthians. But that's a whole other story, so don't go there. Anyway, so there's, there's other writings of these inspired men that were not included in the text because God provided everything we needed in these 66 books for life and godliness. So I firmly believe that if we're going to subscribe to the inspiration of Scripture, we're not just, in, we're not just subscribing to faith that the text itself was uh, uh, guided by the Holy Spirit in its writing, but in its collection as well. Yep, that's what I was going to say. Great job, Kyle. Um, I think there's a, it's important to note there's an element of faith when it comes mm. to the inspiration. There's an element of faith in what we have in our hands. Yes, there's overwhelming evidence. We don't have to close our eyes and say, well, I, ho- I sure do hope God gave me everything I need. It's not that type of faith. Just as, just as Kyle said, second, almost said, uh, Peter said, because that's what I was about to read, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Why would God give his people every single thing they needed since the beginning of time and then around the first century say, I'm just going to leave it up to you guys from here. You know what? You've got some good books. I'm going to let you add some bad books, and I'll just see what you come up with, and we'll go with it. The evidence shows we have exactly what we need, nothing less, nothing more. And my faith says, our faith says, my God would not give me something I didn't need. My God would not leave something out that I did need. And so I think that's important to add into that. We're not, I don't follow God just because all the facts line up. I follow God because the facts line up and because of his love for me and my faith that shows that as well. And I think it's important as we talk about faith, as we talk about how we have to have faith, I think it's important to understand exactly what faith is. And we're not just talking about, um, you know, I have a faith in a good football team that they're going to win it and they're going to do a good job. We're talking about Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So when we come to the text of the Bible, when we come to uh, our spiritual walk, a lot of what we do and a lot of what we believe depends and hinges on our ability to have faith in something that we may not have seen or have a physical evidence for. And that's hard for people to battle with. That's hard for people to accept. But that's exactly what faith is. It's not for everyone, and that's why it is hard to have faith sometimes. When you do get these people that throw these questions about, well, why isn't this in the Bible? Why was this this way? How can you trust a canon, a list of scriptures that was made by man? You see, because that's the problem we're talking about. We obviously know that God's Word is inspired. It is God-breathed. We obviously know that these books go through these tests of canonicity. But guess who? made the list mankind now god aided we have to have faith that god helped them make those decisions and go through those tests but that's why this is such a hard question for people and that's why we get asked this question is the bible reliable because it's hard for us to believe and have faith in mankind why because we are terrible 
We make terrible decisions. We have biases. We have opinions. We have agendas. But when we come to the text of the Bible, when we come to the inspiration, when we come through all this, is the Bible reliable? We have to have faith. The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. One thing I would like to add about the canonicity of the Bible is that I hope we all uh, to reach the point of knowledge of the Word of God that we can see why this book is needed and why this book is enough, I mean why these old books are needed uh, or are uh, enough for us. And as we study each book, we, we need something to, uh, to know more. And then we go toward another book and we can get the answer from that book. So all the Bible books uh, support each other to make the whole knowledge of the God, knowledge of God. So I hope we all get to the point of the knowledge of the Word of God to believe that, the, that God supplied all scripture for us uh, to be saved. Uh, I mean, all, all needed the scripture for us to be saved. I think if, if I ever look at God's Word and I say, you know what, it's missing something. It's missing something I'm needed. They, there's, a, there's something that I need that's not in here. Then the problem is not that it's missing something. I think we could say, I'm missing something in the text. Mm-hmm. So, Miguel, right. I think you bring up a good point. If, I think we should all be striving to the point of our faith that we go to each book and say, this is why this is here. This is why I need this. This is why this is included. And I can understand why this is what I've been given. That's a great point, Mingu. Well, that brings us to our next uh, section that we want to cover tonight. We want to start talking about English translations. As Ben mentioned earlier, the Bible is, is written in three different languages. Uh, you'll have the Old Testament written in Hebrew with some sections in Aramaic, and then, of course, the New Testament written in Greek. So the question then becomes, can I trust an English translation? To start the conversation about English translations, we're going to turn it over to Jay. Yes, Kyle, thank you for giving me this task. I'm going to tell you what translations are wrong and which ones are right, okay? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, so the first question you've got to answer when you've asked this question, can I trust my English translation, really is, okay, how is the English translation that you're holding in your hand, how is it created? How is it uh, constructed? Not created, but what the real word is how is it constructed? Because there's a few different ways that we go from the, the original language. Let's just use the New Testament, okay? There's a few different ways that we go from those original Greek words used that make up now the English words, or Korean words, used in your Bible in front of you, right? There's a few different ways you go from point A to point B here. There's three ways that we're, kind of, we're recognizing tonight, and I think you can almost look anywhere that people recognize, maybe more too, I'll get into that. The first way, what's called, um, it's formal, it's a word-for-word dictation, which means you went to John chapter 3, verse 16, you saw that there's a, you know, a dozen and a half Greek words, and I'm going to literally translate this word means this word in English. This word means this word in English. And I'm going, to re, I'm going to reconstruct the exact same thought word by word from that exact sentence over to now, in my language, this sentence. And so you have a, a, a uh, what did I say? A formal way of doing this, word for word. The next way you translate, a bio, translate the original language is something that's called functional, okay? Which means that you more will say, okay, what does John chapter 3, verse 16, what does this verse say in the Greek? Okay, how can I convey that thought, but better now in an updated English language? 
And so what we, what we kind of, what we get from this is a spectrum. You go from one translation over here going word for word to over here on the other side, a, a translation that said, okay, we've got the thought from the original you know, Greek of John 3.16, and now I want to take that thought and put it in updated language. And then some people would say there's a third, third way of translating, and that's more of a paraphrase. I'm going to read all of John chapter 3. I'm going to give it, what is John trying to say through his message? And I would go maybe as far as to say that's more of like a commentary, but um, word for word thought for thought, and then this third option, maybe more of a paraphrase. But what you get in trouble with sometimes, and I'm going to pull up the next slide. I'm doing a couple uh, double duty tonight. And you can't really read that, but you kind of get an, an, an idea of the spectrum image that I'm trying to get across here, is that there are certain Bibles that fall, of, fall across the spectrum of word for word and thought for thought. Now, the danger of, danger of this is, and we've all, we've all experienced this ourselves, right? That the closer you get to a more thought-for-thought, thought, like the closer you get to look at the far right over here. Yeah, we're both right. You've got the, you know, MSG, not, isn't that the food stuff? Yeah, I'm just kidding. It's <laughs> the, the message. message. It's the message, right? Okay, so the, the further you get to the right, you've got the message. When you start losing the word-for-word word thought, what, what starts getting um, uh, implanted into it? It's my own agenda. It's my own opinion. You ever had to dictate a conversation for somebody? Well, so-and-so told, told, told me this, you know. Well, my mom said I need to get this, and this is how I need to get it. And well, I need to go tell Ben that Kyle said this to me. The best way for me to tell Ben what Kyle told me is to quote him, is to try to, 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 try to get it as close to his words as possible, not say, well, let me tell you, this is the overall thought, and I'm going to kind of in, in, insert my own opinion what what. Kyle, I'm going to say Christ, what Kyle was trying to get across from here. And so this isn't a perfect image in front of you. Some of these could be sliding a little to the left, sliding to the right. But what you'll see is an overall idea of that there's a spectrum of word for word and thought for thought. And so when it comes to the, the translation that you have in your hand, what are you more comfortable with? Now there's, there's pros and cons as you move from left to right. The Greek language, and especially the, 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 the Hebrew and Aramaic in the Old Testament, if you go word for word, one, you're, big on, you're going to be out of order, but it's also going to be kind of clunky. It's also going to be a little different sounding, and sometimes the words may not make exact sense when you just said, this word said this, this word says that. I, I, and I think this may be a good time. Well, I will get up to that in a second. The way it gets from this, though, and I guess I should kind of go into more of the structure of how the, the, tr the first translations are being made, right? Is we've got that first King James Bible coming out from 1611. I'm not going to sit here tonight and tell you that's an awful translation and that, that you're going to be wrong sitting in your seats if you hold that. That's not the case. But there are some errors made in that because of evidence of manuscripts that we have found since then, errors in translation that they made in that. One such is Hebrews chapter 3. When you have the word of Joshua being used, when the context, in, Hebrew, in the King James it says the word Jesus when context and the sentence structure around that clearly is pointing to the Old Testament, same word though, of Joshua. And one thing to point out with the King James is where we get the original languages and where we keep getting backed up from the exact same word over and over and over again is what we call manuscripts, copies of the original language. When Peter wrote down 1 Peter, that was the, the original um, what, what's the autograph. Word? autograph of that. But then there was copies made, and that's what we're finding still to this day. One of, one of the biggest finds that we've ever had was just 50 years ago, the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1950s. I guess it's 70 years ago. 
And so as we go, we keep seeing more and more manuscripts that are only bolstering and building up the exact same original language that we've had. And so sometimes what we have is that we've had more and more, thousands of them more and more found since the King James was written in, in 1611. And so as we have moved in history, not that God's word has improved, not that God's word has changed, but we keep finding more and more evidence backing up the exact same thing that the original language put in the first place. And so I guess with that, I guess I could open up the question is, okay, we all, I think all of us almost use different translations up here. Um, I think there's a couple that double up. I use New American. That's what I, I used a lot in high school. I got used to this. This is what I quote. This is what my Bible teacher used. Um, but it's kind of awkward at times. Some of the sentence structure at times seems a little bit wordy. Some of it sometimes seems a little bit, um, I don't know say unnecessary, but it's a little tough to get out. It doesn't, it doesn't read as smoothly as maybe some of the other translations. So I kind of pass it around and see what you... So I, I use New American, Ben. I use New King James. Why? Because that's what I was raised on. I mean, there you go. Yeah. I was raised on New King James. I memorized a lot of it, and so why would I switch? You know, I, don't, I haven't felt compelled to switch because I'd have to relearn everything. I'd have to start all over. So, you know, you take Greek, and you, you learn all the problems of the New King James, and then you, you can either walk away two, one or two ways. I could walk away, I'm burning every one of them I have because of all the mistakes. Or you could say, well, every single one of them has mistakes. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. Well, let's let Mingu, you go ahead. Which translation do you use? I'm using uh, English Standard Version. Um, you know, uh, I heard uh, very in, uh, funny, uh, funny words uh, from Dr. Clyde Woods, who taught Greek, uh, New Testament Greek. And he was saying, I mean, kind of analogy that what is, what is uh, learning the Bible with English translation? And he said that it is like kissing your wife with a handkerchief between your lips and her lips. And so <laughs> since that well, time, I, I, you know, my ambition was to learn Greek. And I learned Greek. And, and I try to use the interlinear uh, Bible, Greek, Greek manuscript and uh, English words for uh, the words uh, for Greek words, and so, and um, many years later, I found that uh, for me, the English Standard Version uh, could be the best option uh, in that regard. That uh, as I compared the English Standard Version with the Greek manuscript, and I found that the English Standard Version did uh, does the best job, in my opinion, the best job. Uh, translating the Greek manuscript into English. And also, as a you know, second language English user, uh, I started with updated New American Standard Version, and it was pretty <laughs> you know, difficult to read. And I thought it was not very uh, good English. So, but uh, for my uh, uh, special reason as a second language uh, English user, I English Standard Version English language is much smoother than other. I mean, the, yeah. like uh, you updated New American Standard Version or King James Version. So I chose new, uh, English Standard Version. One thing I love about Mingu is he is the most educated in Greek and Hebrew among the four of us. That's right. 
He, he is our Greek expert. There are times in our, our studies that we, that uh, in sitting next to him the past few weeks, I'd look over, he's got his phone out, and he's reading directly from the Greek, and, and then speaking in English. And I'm like, you're not even using your normal language in all of this. Um, but the interesting thing about Mingu that, that he hasn't really mentioned is uh, most all of his study of the Bible is not in Korean language. It's, he uses English translations as he studies the Bible. And I, and I find that fascinating that here he is an English second language user, but that's his primary Bible study language. So I, I just found that fascinating. I, too, use the English Standard Version for very similar reasons. Um, I'm not a Greek expert or anything like that, but I, I just find its flow a little smoother than the other translations. And, and unlike Ben, I have memorized from so many different translations that it's just a jumbled mess in my head. And so I often refer to it as the KRV, the Kyle Rye version. Because I, I, I used too many different translations over the years to narrow in on one, so I kind of made a mistake there. Um, but in reality, when I study God's Word, I might start with the ESV, but I love to compare it to other translations. Mm-hmm. Because I, there are nuances that occur as you compare it to the New American Standard or the New King James or even the Old King James or, 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 or other translations. There are nuances that you'll discover uh, between words and syntax. One thing you need to know, and I think Ben will probably speak to some of this uh, in a minute, one thing you need to know about Greek is Greek does not care about syntax at all. Greek has no order. You know, we, we like to have a subject and then a predicate, and so on. Greek doesn't care. Greek just throws it out there, and you figure it out as you go along. And so uh, what the English translations do is, is they work with syntax, and they work with word order, and they work with taking a word in Greek that could have little variations of translation, like a preposition in Greek can have three or four different ways you can translate that preposition based on the words around it and the way it's used. And so different translations can help you see different nuances to the Greek, but it still all retains the same concepts if translated correctly. So my preference is I start with ESV, but I love to compare and look at other translations as well. But I have a set few translations that I compare with. I don't venture into the uh, paraphrase section because I don't find that useful at all personally. Well, you know, Cal, what does this teach us about the translations? Uh, Why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about this in the study of the reliability of the Bible? I think our takeaway should be, when it comes to English translations, we all should be a little bit more humble. And what I mean by that is there are people who will die on the hill of the King James Version. They believe that it came out of the sky on a golden parachute uh, with a personal letter from the Lord. This is it. No, it's not. The King James Version was made before we even found the Dead Sea Scrolls that gave us all the extra manuscript evidence and all the things that we've talked about. All these other manuscripts found in the 1800s. Well, guess what else? No translation is perfect, and why? Because not only did we go a step from inspiration, the autograph Jay's talking about, which was perfect, we went from the perfect to the transmitted. Who got involved? People. We went from the transmitted to the translation. Who got involved? People. And people make mistakes, and people have biases, and people have agendas. What you need to find out tonight is you need to find you a translation of God's Word that is both formal and functional. Meaning, it is formal, it is close to the original, it is close to the original, but guess what? I'm still able to understand it. That's what functional means. 
I'm still able to know what's even being said. And some of these translations are so formal that you can't understand it. And some of these translations are so functional that you don't understand what God's trying to say. And so you need to find that scope or that, that, that translation that is both formal and functional, is my opinion. But when it comes to this idea about this word-for-word, word, I want a word-for-word word translation. We've talked about this. Some Greek words are four English words. You say, that Greek passage has 120 words in Greek. I want an English version of 120 words. It ain't going to work. <laughs> ain't is not an English word. That's funny. Uh, actually, isn't it now? Uh, that's what my mom always said. Ha-ha, Mom. It is a word. Um, but when I think about translations, we have got to get a whole lot more humble in our approach. You know, when I was growing up, uh, we always joked about the NIV. Now, there might be people here tonight who love the NIV, and that's great. When I was growing up, we called it the not-inspired version. Ha-ha, NIV, you get it? But then you go to Freed, and guess what? You, you go to Christian colleges, guess what? You learn that it's a lot more accurate than the New King James in some places. And then you find that it's a lot more inaccurate than the New King James in some places. And so how do you take it? You either walk away and say, well, burn all of them, I'll make my own. Well, that's going to take a lot of uh, study. Or you can say, and I'm going to be humble about this. I'm going to walk away and say, I'm not going to let translations be a barrier between me and another person. And I do Bible studies with people all the time. They'll pull out the message, Kyle. They'll pull out their personal favorite translation. And some would have us believe, before we engage in study, you need to have the version I have. What kind of wall and barrier are you putting before you and that person? when you're trying to talk about God's Word. Instead, we need to be a lot more humble in our approach when it comes to translations. I found that the people who are so bent out of shape about translations the most are the people who know the original language the least. They simply, that's what my granddaddy had, and so that's the best one. We need to be a lot more humble. And guess what at the end of the day? Here's my proof that we need to be humble. Guess what Jesus used? Jesus used the Septuagint. You know what that is? That is a translation of the Old Testament. A translation into the Greek at the time. And guess what it had? A whole lot of mistakes. Thousands of translation variances, the same way our English translation has variances. It had a whole lot of errors in it because mankind got involved when they were translating this. But did Jesus say, I'm not going to use the Septuagint? Of all people, He is the Word. Jesus is the Word. But we find that He quotes straight from the Septuagint in His teachings. Which means Jesus had the humility to accept a translation. So can you trust the English translation of the Bible? Jesus trusted the Septuagint. Jesus used the Septuagint. We need to know where the errors are. We need to know where all these variances are. And we need to investigate the manuscript evidence sometimes in some passages. But to put a bridge and a barrier between me and another person over a translation, that's a serious mistake in my opinion. 
because that's not the humility that Christ showed and that's not the humility we should have. There is no authorized version that came out of a golden parachute with uh, the Lord's signature on it. And it's time that we stop acting like it. It's time that we actually instead take the time to understand the conversation for ourselves instead of what we've always been told. All right, we want to turn our attention now to one final question for tonight, and what, that is, what are the benefits or, and or blessings of studying the Bible? Mingu, you want to get us started with this one? Okay. Um, basically, uh, as we study the Word of God, we can get the answers of our life from the Word of God. And you know the Word of God is the, the truth, the truth. And we can get the ultimate answers only from the Word of God. We should not go to other sources than the Word of God to get our ultimate answers to our life questions. And that's what Jesus taught. For example, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse, uh, verses 24 through 27, Jesus said, you know these verses, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the, rock, on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and the... Uh, and great was the fall of it. And also, not only the, uh, the answers that uh, we can get answers from the words of God, but also we can get encouragement from the word of God. We can get hope from the word of God. You know, as we live as uh, Christians, it is not easy. It's, we have to overcome the uh, you know, worldly situations and difficult situations, and we have to overcome the persecutions even in this world, and uh, we have to keep up with uh, righteousness, we have to keep up with the commandments of God, then we need strength, we need encouragement to do that. We, we have to be encouraged and strengthened to keep on uh, going toward God and God's will. And we need the strength, and we can get the strength uh, from the word of God the most. You know, who did that? The King David got all strengths from the law of God. He said it, you know, a Psalm chapter, I mean, the, the, the first Psalm, he, he praised it. And Psalm uh, 119, he praised the word of God. And he, he expressed his, uh, his way how to get the strengths that he, could, he should get to live as a godly person. So we have to uh, look at that and we have to mimic that. And we have to know that only from the Word of God we can get the strength and uh, encouragement so that we can live as a Christian as we should. Amen. I'll just share one verse. I know we're running out of time. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 60, uh, 63. Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. Listen to this last part. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. What are the benefits or the blessings of studying the Bible? We're having a Bible study about this on Wednesday nights right now in the youth group. 
there's a lot of benefits, but I think the best way to see that is that you cannot have a life without it. The Bible is not just a beneficial book, it's a crucial book. It's something that we, this is where we find life alone from. I think about just early in the chapter when he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. The, the, the benefits of going to God's Word is that's where He is. That's where we get to see what He's like and who He is and how He acts, how He responds, His mind, His heart being laid out in front of us. The benefits of God's Word is that we just get to, be, we get to grow closer to God through that by seeing Him displayed. For me tonight, uh, and while studying for this, I think we have to understand how blessed we are to have the full canon, the full oracles of God. Because in other times, men of faith and women of faith had a little bit of it, had a little section of it, had a little bitty tidbit of it, but they couldn't see the full picture. And that's something that Paul talks about in Ephesians and other places throughout his writings about this mystery that's been revealed. But we tonight can have a better understanding of God's full will for our life and full will since the foundation of the earth than Moses did, than David did, than Abraham did, than Paul did. Because we've seen all of it revealed through this word, through this written, inspired word breathed out by God. And we see in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. What Paul is saying is we're prophesying in these little bits, we're prophesying in these little parts, but when that which is perfect has come, the whole word of God is complete. All this prophesying part can be done away with. Tonight we have the whole word of God. What a tremendous blessing that is to our life. And we look at these new, uh, Old Testament uh, uh, people and these New Testament people, look at the faith they had. Look at the tremendous faith that they displayed. And they only had little bits and pieces. How much more then should our faith be knowing that we have the whole of Scripture? What an amazing, humbling thought for us to think about tonight in this blessing, the benefit of the Bible, that we know the entire will of God, everything that pertains to life and godliness. We've been given everything that makes us complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what I'm thinking about tonight. One last verse, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path benefit of, of studying God's Word is you have guidance for life. We thank you for being a part of this study. We know the format on a Sunday night in person is, is a little unique, uh, but we thank you for being here and studying with us. We'll close out in a word of prayer uh, before we dismiss. Our Heavenly Father, we're honored to be in your presence tonight studying your Word. Grateful that the opportunity has arisen again for us to assemble in person. We are grateful that we can continue to broadcast these studies virtually for those unable to get out. We pray that, that as we continue these studies for a few more weeks that you will 
bless them so that we all glean, that we all gain, that we all grow. And Lord, may we consult your word for everything that we need. May we not hesitate to turn to it for guidance, for encouragement, and for an understanding of your will. Thank you, Lord, for, for giving us your complete revelation and help us to not take it for granted. We love you, Lord, and it's through your son's name we pray. Amen. Before we dismiss, I, I do want to say this. If Last week we talked a lot about doubt. If you're struggling with doubt, we encourage you to reach out to one of us or one of the elders so that we can help you through that. If you're struggling with confidence in God's word, we encourage you to reach out to one of us or one of the elders so that we can help you with that. Because we want to help you have confidence in the very thing that gives us guidance to heaven. Thank you for being here. Thank you for watching online and have a blessed evening.